Well, good morning. My name is Nick. If you are with us as a guest for the first time, uh, welcome to Alliance Fellowship. We are so glad that you're with us, and I am blessed to bring the Word of God this morning. We have a lot going on, which you can tell from the announcements. Also, for you who have been following along with the whole process of us purchasing land to potentially build a future church building, uh, we are supposed to, we are scheduled to close on that property on Friday. So that's pretty cool. Yes, very excited about that. And so uh, after that, we will start talking about the plans moving forward from that. But today, we are going to jump back in to our gospel series. This is week 14 of the gospel series, and we are still just getting started. I don't know if I'm going to go triple digits in this thing. We will see. But if you have a Bible or device or a memory chip that just brings the Word of God up in your brain, or whatever it is, turn to John chapter 3. I'm not saying to get that Elon Musk chip. I'm not, like, we don't need to get into Revelation conversations right now. But maybe you, maybe you do you. Last week, we read this crazy story of Jesus going into the temple courts, fashioning a whip and driving out the money changers and the merchants who were turning his father's house into a marketplace. He was upset that the merchants and money changers were manipulating people into giving all of their resources in order to worship God. Because that's not what they were supposed to be doing. And so Jesus becomes righteously angry. He goes in, he starts whipping some oxen, gently telling them to take the birds away, flipping some tables, the whole thing. If you were here, I flipped a table. I'm always surprised when people don't see that coming. I'm like, I had a table right there. How did you not know that was going to happen? Anyways, this week we're going to continue on in a different part of that story. It actually doesn't seem like it's part of that story, but it is connected to that story because there was a man who was there to witness all of that. And after that, he wants to talk to Jesus. And before I jump into the story, I want to tell you a little bit about him. His name is Nicodemus. I'm going to call him Nicodemus or Nico. I'm going to go back and forth because that's what my brain does. And and I'm Italian. There's lots of Nicks in my family. So Nick gets turned into Nico or Nico or Nicky or hey, Nicky, like whatever it is. But... That's what I'm going to call him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And you may or may not know the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders in Israel that were the most stringent about rules. I don't know if you know somebody who's just one of those people like they love rules. That's not me. But I know people who just like rules give them happiness because it gives them order. It gives them like a sense of what everything is supposed to be. These Pharisees love the rules. They love to know every minutia of the rules. In fact, they were so hardcore about following every jot and tittle in the law that they would create sub rules to keep them away from breaking the rules. Right? So, for instance, one of the laws is keep holy the Sabbath day. And so they would be so hardcore about making sure that they don't break the Sabbath that they would create hundreds of other laws 
so that they wouldn't accidentally break the Sabbath. So the Sabbath says, keep this day holy. Don't do any work on this day. So they say, okay, nobody's allowed to walk more than a mile. Because if you do, you might be working. But if you want to walk a couple miles, you can kind of skirt this rule by making a meal after you've gone a mile and then starting a new walk. Right, like they had all these ways of kind of making sure that they keep the letter of the law, but maybe work around it. But they loved it. Scholars actually believe, and this is interesting, that the Pharisees may have started in a good way. After the exile to Babylon, some of the theological thinkers thought, look at all these bad things that are happening because we are not following God's law. And so they begin to say, we are going to be separate which is literally what the word Pharisee means. We're going to separate ourselves, and we're going to follow every single rule. They may have been born out of a desire to do what God has asked them to do, but as often happens, that desire grows into no longer a desire to just please God, but the desire to look like the best rule you can possibly be. And it becomes legalism. It becomes more about adhering to the rules than loving the rule giver. So he's a Pharisee. Not only is he a Pharisee, it says that he was a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he was a part of the Sanhedrin, which is basically their supreme court. They have a 71-member supreme court that rules over the Jewish people, and he's one of those political leaders. So he's a religious leader, he's a political leader, Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel, which means even amongst those 71, he may have been the one that everyone looks to and says, we're going to listen to Nicodemus. He had incredible influence in them. And on top of that, we're pretty sure that Nicodemus was a wealthy man. Because much later in the book of John, after Jesus dies, Nicodemus purchases somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds of burial spices for them to use, which would have been a mass fortune for them at the time. And so this man is a religious leader. He is a political leader. He is an educational leader. He's a wealthy man. And so as you hear this story that we're going to talk about between Jesus and Nicodemus, keep in mind he is about as influential of a person in that world as you could possibly be. And it's not common for a man like that to go to another person and seek wisdom and guidance and answers. But that's exactly what we're going to see. So open your Bible, device, brain scan, John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's awkward. Verse 5. 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Then we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, we're going to stop there. Something interesting happens immediately at the very beginning of this story. I don't know if you noticed it, but Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime, which is a little uncommon. There's a few ideas of why this might be. One is they might just both be busy men. Nicodemus has a lot of responsibilities as a religious leader, as a political leader, and so he doesn't have time during the day, so he comes to Jesus at night. Or he knows it might be his only opportunity to have a conversation with Jesus because there are people crowding around Jesus all the time. So he figures, I can go up on top of the house in the nice little courtyard and we can have a conversation at nighttime. Or he's embarrassed because he is one of the leaders of Israel. He is the one that is supposed to have all of the answers And yet he is going to Jesus, this young rabbi, who just caused a commotion and asking him for wisdom and guidance and answers. We don't know exactly what the reason is, but it's interesting that he comes to him at nighttime. And then the way that he starts the conversation is interesting. Because again, this is a man of great means, great power. Everyone talks up to him, and yet he starts his conversation with Jesus, and he seemingly pays a great deal of respect. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher. He calls Jesus Rabbi, thereby speaking to him as a colleague, as an equal, which would normally be a great sign of respect for someone who is as important as Nicodemus is. And then he says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. So right off the bat we see, Nicodemus has this view of Jesus that's different than all of the other religious leaders did at the time. The other leaders, leaders, if you remember, they were like, who do you think you are, Jesus? But Nicodemus comes to him and says, you must be from God. His attitude is very, very different. He says, I know you're from God because there's no way that you could do the things that you're doing if you weren't. But Jesus answers Nicodemus, and notice Jesus basically ignores all of the nice things that Nicodemus just said to him. He doesn't say, thanks for recognizing who I am. Thanks for seeing my authority. You're right, I am all of these things. He doesn't do any of that. He skips right past all of that, and he says, truly, truly, and I want to say just for a second, 
That doesn't mean that Jesus lies all the time. He's like, okay, what I'm about to say is actually true. No, he says, truly, truly, in the way that we would say, listen to this. This is important. Pay attention. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now notice this. Jesus hears Nico say, you must be from God because of the things that we have seen you do. He's talking about seeing the power of God. But Jesus says, listen closely, Nico. Listen closely. If you really want to see the power of God, if you really want to see the kingdom of God, then watching signs and wonders is not where it's seen. It's in being born again. It says, if you want to see the power of God, you must be born again. Nico says, we've seen you do amazing things. And Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. You, if you really want to see it, you have to be born again. And notice it says, you must be. This is not a good idea. This is not like, it'd be nice if you were born again. He says, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nico's response to this is exactly what you would think that somebody would say if they've never understood this idea before. He says, I'm old. How can I be born again? And then he says even more awkwardly, can I climb back up into my mother's womb? Is that what you're asking me to do? And Jesus' answers to those questions seem just as mysterious. Truly, truly, I say, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This answer is mysterious as well, and it's an answer that scholars have been debating for centuries. What does it mean to be born of water and of spirit. Some have argued that this is talking about baptism, that you need to be born of the water and then be saved by the Spirit of God. The problem with that understanding is that we know from Scripture that baptism doesn't save us, right? What would we do with the thief on the cross next to Jesus if that were the case? He doesn't have an opportunity to get down off the cross and get baptized. And yet, when he professes faith in Jesus, Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. So it can't be talking about baptism. And there's another idea out there that it's talking about the Word of God. Because often, the Word of God is referred to as water for a thirsty soul. But again, we run into the same idea If it's saying we have to know the scriptures in order to be saved, then what do we do with the thief on the cross or anybody who's ever been saved in the deathbed conversion? They don't know the word of God. They haven't had a chance to do Bible studies for years. And so it can't be that. So what is it? I would contend my opinion is it's actually a very simple answer. We have two births as Christians. You are born of the physical body, and you are born of the Spirit. And what do we call it when we have a baby? What do we say when a woman is right about to give birth? 
her water broke. Right? The baby is born into life through the water. And then later, when we follow Christ and give our hearts and our souls to Jesus, then we are born again spiritually. I think when Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit, he is simply saying you are born into this world and then you were born into the kingdom of God. It's a lot more simple than some people have tried to make it. Now, here's one of the interesting things about this interaction. Nicodemus is an Israelite, one of the children of God. So he and all of the Israelites at the time believe that their ticket into the kingdom of God is basically just the fact that they were born because they're Jewish. They're Israelites. And so that automatically means that they are a part of the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says to him, you need another birth, a birth that's not based on your racial identity or your religious lineage, Jesus is calling into question the entire way that Nicodemus views himself and the world around him. He's saying, Nicodemus, you completely misunderstand all of this. Even though you're the great teacher, even though you're the one that people come to for guidance and for knowledge, you misunderstand all of this. That's a very humbling thing for an older man who is well-respected to hear from a 30-year-old. You're missing the whole boat, Nicodemus. And so Jesus explains again, still speaking pretty mysteriously, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. This is a play on words that we don't really get in English, but in the original language, the word for wind and spirit is the same word. It's the word pneuma. And so he says, the pneuma blows where it wishes, right? So the, the, the spirit, the wind blows wherever it wants to go. It's a play on words. And Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit doesn't only blow where you think it should, Nicodemus. It doesn't only go where you believe it should go. It blows wherever it wishes, and it's blowing all over the world, giving spiritual birth to the nations. We never know who God is going to get a hold of. I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where you realize somebody has begun to follow Jesus and you knew them earlier in life, and you're like, what? I'm that person for a lot of people in my hometown. I knew a guy, I remember a guy, we'll call him Bo, because that's his name. Love that joke every time. Okay. I went to high school and middle school with a guy named Bo, and Bo was a skater boy. He said, see you later, boy. Okay, don't. I saw that. I saw that. He was a skater boy, and Bo was the kind of guy who would intentionally tick off everyone. He would go out of his way to anger people. And he thought it was hilarious. And I remember one time in high school, even watching Bo intentionally walk up to a group of African-American guys and say horrible things to them because he wanted to see how bad the beating would be. And I watched the beating. It was pretty bad. 
And I watched him get up and laugh about it, and he thought it was hilarious. Bo was a little loose in the head, okay? The kind of guy that I would have never thought, like, he's going to be a Jesus follower. Fast forward many, many years. I go to work at a church in my hometown. I go the first Sunday morning, and guess who's sitting in the church? Bo. And I literally was like, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm born again. I was like, God does miraculous things. Absolutely. We don't know where the Spirit of God is moving. And just like Nicodemus, often we think we understand how the Spirit of God works, and we don't. We miss it. Now before I move off of this onto something else, I want to say something I've said before, but I think it's important. This term, born again, gets thrown around a lot. And unfortunately, it it may have a negative connotation to some of you. Because in previous generations, it, it kind of got lumped in with a certain political ideology or a certain group of people. And, and it, it became almost this negative thing to say, oh, you're one of those born-again Christians. But let's not allow the world to take away a biblical truth from us. Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, there's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. He says it is a must for you to be born again, to be born of the Spirit of God. And so I understand that that word, as well as words like evangelical and and other words that have had these negative connotations and, and people try to take them away, let's redeem those things rather than just allowing them to be taken away because somebody used them incorrectly. Just like the word Christian. If you don't know, the the word Christian first came, they were making fun of the Jesus followers. Christian means little Jesus. Little Christ. They were mocking them. And I love it that the Christians at Antioch were just like, I'll take that. I'm good with that. So Let's not give away those things just because they've been misused. Let's redeem them. We are all, if we are following Jesus and if we have repented and and received the Holy Spirit in our heart, then we are born-again Christians. It's who we must be. Continuing in this conversation between Nico and Jesus, Nico is understandably confused. Nothing that he's hearing from Jesus fits into his worldview, into the way that he sees things in life. And so he responds. And at this point, you can kind of see him just exasperated. He just says, how? How can these things be? What Jesus says next, I don't think is meant to mock Nicodemus. I think he's just making the point that no man's wisdom can fully apprehend this truth. And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? He's saying you're considered like the smartest guy in every room that you go to. You're the guy that people just kind of walk around and, and, and almost worship because of your knowledge. And even you don't understand these things. Even you, with all of your influence, <clears throat> have missed the truth of what the Messiah was coming to do. And Jesus speaks again. He says, we speak of things we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. And yet you, Nicodemus, do not receive our testimony. Notice that. 
our testimony. Who is our? How did we just go from Jesus to plural? Because of the testimony of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the testimony of the fullness of the Godhead that Jesus is the Messiah. And he continues again. Jesus says, I've told you earthly things and you don't even believe them. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? But then interestingly, Jesus goes on to immediately start telling him heavenly things. He says, how are you going to understand these things if you can't even understand the earthly? And then he goes to verse 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. He's revealing, I am the one who has descended. I am the Son of Man. And then listen to this. Verse 14 and 15 are fascinating. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Goes and talks about something from the Torah thousands of years ago, all the way from the book of Numbers. He brings this story in, and it's a fascinating story where Moses and God have led the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and then people do what they do. They start immediately complaining. God, you gave us freedom, but this food isn't good. God, you gave us freedom, but like this water is a little bit mineral-y, right? You... You're literally providing food magically from heaven, but it's kind of boring. And God gets angry, and it says he sends fiery serpents to the people of Israel. These snakes are biting people, and they are dying. And then the people go, they, they, they repent. They say, God, we've sinned against you. Moses, we've sinned against you. God, Moses, would you pray to God and ask him to Redeem us from these fiery serpents. And so God answers Moses. And interestingly, God doesn't just say, all right, I'll get rid of them. It's one of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament. It's only like four verses long. But God says, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to make a bronze snake, snake, put it on a pole, and then hold it up. And then tell everybody that if they just look towards the bronze snake, they will be saved from the fiery snakes that are killing them. And they do. And that's the whole story. Like, what? Okay. And then Jesus harkens back to this story because if you understand it, it is the story of what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to be made to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, He is made to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. We are the people being bitten by the fiery serpents of sin and death and destruction. And we're crying out, God, what do we do? And God says, look to the pole. Jesus is made into that serpent on the cross the one that saves us from our sin. Now, obviously, Nicodemus does not understand all of this. We have the blessing of looking at it from way far away and seeing, man, what Jesus is tying together here is incredible. 
He brings this story from the ancient scriptures and shows how the whole of creation is working for the redemption of mankind. Okay, come back. Let's read the part of this chapter that everybody already knows and talk about it because it's worth talking about. Jesus is still in the middle of this conversation. A lot of people don't realize that. When they read this verse that everybody knows, they don't realize it's a part of a larger conversation that is going on with a religious, political, financial, educational leader. They just take this one scripture and take it out of context. And all by itself, it's amazing. But if you understand it in this context, it's even more. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. (coughs) Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, most of you probably know John 3.16, that first verse, is probably, if not certainly, the most popular scripture in all of the Bible. And for good reason. That one verse contains within it the entire gospel story. This thing that we're talking about for months and months and months, the gospel, you can boil it down to this verse. This one powerful sentence, and Christians have, have, have shared this verse everywhere. If you ever have ever been blessed by God to eat an In-N-Out burger, then maybe you already know this, but if you go to In-N-Out burger right now and look at the bottom of your soda cup, it says John 3.16. I've never personally shopped at for Forever 21 because, but I'm told... I'm told that their bags also have this verse written on them, John 3.16. If you open up a Gideon Bible that you see at a hotel room, you'll see that inside the front cover, there are 27 different languages of John 3.16 written in them. This verse appears everywhere. If you ever watched a sporting event where somebody's just holding up a sign... Or if you're older, you might remember the rainbow guy who would always have the rainbow afro wig. You go to NFL games and he'd hold up the sign, John 3.16, hoping that people would read it. If you're my age, you might remember Tim Tebow with his eye black saying, John 3.16. Like, it's everywhere because it is the whole gospel in one verse. Martin Luther called it the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Personally, I would argue, 
and I have many times, that every time that verse is read, then John 3.17 should be read with it. Because I love John 3.17, because there are so many people who have this broken idea of God in their hearts and in their minds, that God's desire is just to destroy them, to judge them, and to send them to hell. And yet John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The longing of God's heart is that people be saved and spend eternity with him. John, sorry, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not willing that any shall perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's desire, his heart. And then verse 18 tells us what separates those who are saved and those who are not saved. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. This is an important point for us to realize. We are saved in the name of Jesus Christ, but if we do not believe, we are already condemned. There's not this moment where we decide I'm in or I'm out. We were already condemned because we have sin and brokenness in us. We are born lost, and we need to receive salvation. And the only way to do that is to be born again. In verse 19 through 21 speaks to us about Jesus coming into the world again. So he came as light, but the people loved the darkness because they believed that they could hide their sin in the darkness. But this is not the case. Everyone's works are seen. Everything that is done will be uncovered. And those who do what is true will be seen as well. And their actions will be carried out because of their love for God. All of this is gospel. And as we begin to come to a close, I want, I want to really hone in on one idea in this scripture. As we finish today, I want to hit one word that is used seven times just in what we've read today. And it's actually used almost a hundred times in the whole book of John. It's the word believe. Seven times just in our scriptures today it says believe. It is the answer to the questions that all of us are asking. It is the answer to a question that maybe some of you are asking right now. Some of you might be asking, okay, you keep talking about being born again, but how do I do that? Or your questions might be bigger. What is the meaning of all of this? What is my purpose in this world? How do I live a life that is fulfilled and meaningful? I know that I'm lost on my own, but how can I be saved? And all of these questions come down to this idea. Believe. Put your faith in Jesus, just as John 3, 16 and 17 tells us to. We were created by God, for God, and for God's glory. And everything that we are seeking in this life starts with belief in the one who gave us this life. Romans tells us in the most simple terms that we can find 
if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The faith, the belief that we can have in God is the only thing that will give us the desires and longings of our heart. The true depth of who we long to be. So what does that mean? How do we practically begin to live a life of belief and faith? I've said this before, but it's, it's true. Is to have faith is literally to shift your weight onto something else. Rather than to trust everything to yourself, to say, I'm going to put all that I am, all of my weight onto something else. And whether you realize it or not, every time you sit down in a chair, you are doing an act of faith, especially me. <clears throat> I'm believing that I can shift all of my weight onto this and that it will hold me, that it will support me, that it will keep me up. And this is what we do. We don't just mentally subscribe to the academic ideas of Jesus. We don't just go to church on Sunday and say, this is a really good pep talk. But we begin to actually like put all of our weight, all of our substance onto Jesus. And we trust him. And we say, I'm going to give you everything, Lord. I trust you with my life, my job, my marriage, my kids, my finances, everything that makes up this life, Lord. I I give it to you, and I believe that you will hold me up. My belief is not just mental, but practical in the way that I live my life, the decisions that I make, the actions that I take, And all of them should begin to shift towards putting my full weight in the hands of God. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Listen. Nico, it doesn't matter that you were born of a certain race. It doesn't matter that you were the most educated man in Israel. It doesn't matter that you're a religious scholar or that you're wealthy or that people listen to you and you have influence. None of those things can save you, Nico. All that can save you is faith in Jesus Christ because you are still a man who has fallen short and needs God. You are still broken and in need of a Savior. And just like the serpent that the people look to on the pole, we have got to look to Jesus. And say, I can't do this. I need you, Lord. The same message that Jesus delivers to Nicodemus is the message that he delivers to us today. And I want you to make that personal. And I know a lot of you are Montana people. You don't like to be uncomfortable. But I'm going to ask you to lean into just a, just a tiny bit of uncomfort. Okay? Would you stand up with me? 
I want all of us together to read John 3, 16 and 17 again. But, don't take this as heresy. I'm not trying to take away from the scripture. I just want you to put this in your context. I want us to read this. And when you get to one of those blanks, I want you to say your first name. For God to love Nick. Whatever, don't say Nick. You say your first name. Okay? I mean, it's true, but that's very self. Okay. You say you. You ready? For God so loved Nick that he gave Nick his only son, that when Nick believes in him, Nick should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn Nick, but in order that Nick might be saved through him.